Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. This is where the, the really intense podcast gets really, really intense. It's called The Forbidden Question. The Forbidden Question is, are we living in what is called a base reality, or are we living in a virtual reality or a simulated reality that is reflecting a base reality somewhere else? Now, a lot of people think, you know, well, this is science fiction. If consciousness informs itself through its creations, and we have made all of these movies about these simulations, what are we asking ourselves to remember? 2001, the first scientific experiments were run, uh, and a paper was written by a man named Nick Bostrom, but he asked the question. He said, are we living in, in a virtual reality? He set up a very complex algorithm and ran the algorithm on the computer, and the bottom line is that the odds are greater that we are in a simulation than that we are not in a simulation. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm pretty intense. It is my great honor to welcome to the show today, Greg Braden. I'm a huge fan of Greg Braden. I'd call him kind of part of this like cool brat pack that are like leading edge scientists and doctors and geologists and archaeologists and uh, all, all the ologists uh, with Joe Dispenza, with Nassim Haramine, with Bruce Lipton. Uh, Greg Braden is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, scientist, international educator, and renowned as a pioneer in the emerging paradigm based in science, social policy, and human potential. And what a better time to talk to somebody about human potential than right now, which was the basis of our conversation. There are so many different directions that um, can be gone with Greg. Uh, he's uh, so well qualified in so many different aspects of uh, things that I'm, I'm for sure curious about. Uh, but today we focused on... Uh, you know, human potential. We talked about what are we like, what is our nature? Uh, we talked about the difference between science and spirituality and how they merge. And uh, it was all just about the human condition, the human experience and uh, what we're here for and where we could be going. So fascinating conversation. And I was most excited to hear that he was totally down for a part two on other things. And uh, I hope you love him as much as I do, because I'm probably going to ask for that. So enjoy. Hey, Danica, you're my, you're my neighbor. I didn't know that. You're my neighbor in Arizona. I'm, I am in a studio just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico today. Oh so. man, we are neighbors. Is that yeah. where you live all the time is in Santa Fe? 
my, uh, I have a home I, I bought in 1986 up north of Taos. It literally is in the middle of nowhere. So I have that home and I, I used to fly uh, out of the Albuquerque airport every week. So this gets, gets me closer to the airport. And this was a good place to be for COVID. Uh, it was much more, much more functional. For, I have better internet access here, so I could do uh, all the things that I did during COVID. Where are you from? I was born, I'm a Midwestern boy. I was born in, in Missouri, and you're, you're just north of me, I think, is where you That's were born. That's right. North of, a little east, yeah. I'm from Illinois. I was yep. born in Wisconsin, but grew up in Illinois. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, good Midwesterners. Like, you always know when you've met one because they're very friendly, very kind. They're really outgoing. They're just, you know. We're good. We're good people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I got to tell you, it was a good place to be with muscle cars back in, in the day. The Midwest is where it was at. I got to tell you. <laughs> It's probably what got my dad there, which ended up getting me there. Um, so totally true. Totally yeah. true. I want to talk about everything, but we don't have time for everything. So yeah. I had to break it down. I, I, I think where I'd like to go with this is really understanding what we are, where we came from, what we are, the nature of our existence, and then you know how that relates to where we're going or mm. where we could go with artificial intelligence and you know the potential of humans versus maybe what's natural versus what's not and or or is that i mean kind of unpacking all that sure. um i would love to get into geology and into artifacts and into ancient you know ruins and things found and you know i was just watching something the other day, one of something I had record, I had downloaded a whole bunch of stuff on YouTube, uh, from your y YouTube. And anyway, one of them showed, you know, skulls that were the elongated skulls, which sure. are very common people have seen. And it's like, how can we not, how do we see elongated skulls and not just go, we don't know all there is to know about our history. Anyway, I digress. Geology is for another day. I think that what's a very relevant topic right now is empowerment, sovereignty, what we are and where we're going. So one of the things that you say so many times is that we're advanced beings that have uh, a self-regulatory system. Mm. And so, you know, what when you say that we're an advanced being, uh, explain that and in relation to what? You know, we just covered a lot of ground. You just asked a lot, a lot of questions. And the truth is, that they're all related and that there can be no digression because we are holistic beings living in a holistic universe, part of all that is, and that is the fallacy for the way that we, we try to approach so many of our problems, the fallacy that we are somehow separate from one another, separate from our world, uh, and powerless victims of our environment. And I think one of the things that's happening right now, Danica, the if you know, if you're going to have a global pandemic, it's good to have it uh, in the age of the internet, because the internet has allowed us to stay connected, and it's allowed us to access information in ways that we we never have in the past. And part of that access, uh, I think, is the answer to to the question that you just asked. So I'm, I'm going to begin the answer by simply saying there's a battle that is unfolding in our world right now on multiple levels. Uh, right in front of our eyes. We all know there's a battle for our thoughts. That's very obvious. The media is battling 
to inform and guide the way that we think about ourselves and our relationship to the world and, and how we respond to the pandemic and the economy and uh, race and all the other things that are up for us right now. There's that battle. But that battle is based upon a battle for our beliefs. And that battle is playing out in academia. It's playing out with what we teach our kids about who they are and the way that they solve the problems of the world that come to them from, from the time that they're very young. The battle for our beliefs. Uh, where did we come from? Are we an accident of lucky biology? Or is there some intentionality underlying our existence? I mean, that's a huge question. Is the universe dead and unconscious and inert? Or is the universe alive and intelligent and connected? Uh, that battle is playing out. There's a battle for our bodies, and I think we're all getting that. What does it take to get healthy? What's it take to stay healthy? What do we have to give our, our babies within moments of when they emerge from the womb, when they come into this world, we are conditioned to think that they have to have something outside of themselves in order to survive. All those battles are playing out, but I want to tell you they're all static. They're noise, and they're covering what I believe is the deepest battle of our time. Danica, it's a battle for our very humanness. Our very humanness is on the line right now because for the first time in recorded human history, we have the technology that can steal our humanness from us in ways that some people aren't even aware of and other societies and cultures are adopting very, very quickly. And I'm talking about computer chips implanted into the human brain and chemicals injected into the body and wires under the skin. And the problem, the problem with this technology that's moving so fast is that when we give our natural humanness away, when we give away our biological potential to technology, our body begins to atrophy with respect to those potentials. So if, if we're implanting chips in our brain, our neurons, you, we've all heard this before, use it or lose it. Biology, you hear this all the time. Our neurons begin to think they're not needed anymore. And so they stop producing. In one generation, the next generation, they become uh, uh, an appendage of something that used to be and we're not using them anymore. And for the first time in 5,000 years of recorded human history, the technology has the power to forever change our species. And the question, and this, I'm laying the foundation to answer the question that you asked. The question is, and I would never tell anyone or try to convince or persuade anyone to or not to use the technology, but here's the key. The key is how much of ourselves do we want to give away to the technology and lose forever? We can't answer that until we know who we are. And that brings us back to the very first question that you asked. And it's, I got to tell you, it's where the scientific discoveries are coming so fast and furious uh, in these obscure technical journals that very few people get to see, but they're based upon peer-reviewed science and they're writing a new human story. And that new human story is what the COVID pandemic is pushing us to understand. So I'm going to stop right there and ask, does yeah. that make sense, first of all? Or, or yeah, of course it does. Yeah. So the, I think one of the things uh, that we're beginning to understand, we, we have been conditioned for a couple of generations now to see the human body as a flawed organism. Carbon-based life in general and the human body specifically is somehow flawed. And 
because it is flawed, that we need to build things outside of us that will help us to become the best versions of ourselves, to become the, achieve our, our greatest potentials, whether it's athletics or whether it's mental or emotional capabilities, all, all of these things. So this is the path that, uh, that technology is following very, very quickly. And what we're seeing is that the technology has advanced faster than the morality of how we apply it in our lives. And I'll just give you a perfect example of what I mean by that. A couple of years ago, uh, scientific papers began describing the ability to edit the DNA uh, of, an, an, of a fetus inside the womb of a living woman, just the way you would edit uh, a, a document in a, a word processor on the computer. So on a word processor, you can, you can add or delete words. You can highlight an entire paragraph, cut it, paste it somewhere else. We now have editors where the, the genes come up on the computer screen and you can highlight and delete and merge and remove and rearrange genes in the DNA of a living organism to optimize and perfect that organism while it's still in the womb, before it's ever born. And the question is, whose idea of what is optimum do we begin to use to do something like that? Well, well, this was all theory. They were doing it in the lab till 2018. In 2018, there was a Chinese scientist that very proudly said, holding the baby in his arms, here are our first gene-edited human babies. He had done in real life what had been done in the laboratory in, in theory and in tests. And the scientific community came down on him like a ton of bricks really? because they said, wait a minute, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And we see this time and time again with technology where the technology advances just because we can implant a computer chip into the human brain that connects us with a hard drive of our computer with no wires no keyboards, and allows us to download information, does that mean that we should? And we cannot answer those things, Danica, until we begin to understand who we are. So these discover this is the way science works. The discoveries are pushing science to understand who we are. And what they are discovering is a mind blower. Because what they're, uh, I'll just say it, and then we can unpack it. What they're discovering, I'm going to say it like this. We have yet to discover any technology built outside of the human body that does not mimic what we already do in the cells and the neurons and the organs of our body, except we do it better. We are what is called a soft technology. So rather than thinking of a, of a hard computer chip and wires and chemicals, we're talking about neurons and and fluids, ion potentials moving across the membranes of cell walls and crystalline bone structure. And when we begin to understand what that means and the ability, our innate ability to self-regulate this technology, that's the mind blower. Because what it says is that, yeah, we, we can do these things in the technology, but the technology maybe is reminding us of who we are to push us in that evolutionary direction. 
and uh, and there's so much that I can I can go into about that, but I I and I want to, but I'm just going to take a, a breath and and see if there are questions or yeah, if the, you're okay really. with where this is going. Beautiful. I I mean, what comes up for me is, and this is sort of a question I keep asking of you know the nature of reality and other people around me out out of pure curiosity and and um, and uh, dialogue, but you know, there's such a fascination around. Are we a simulation? Are we mm. not? And there's just so many ways to see. There's an argument on both sides, I feel. And, you know, when we talk about being able to, you know, upgrade and pattern and all kinds of things, you think about, well, it seems like we're some kind of a program in and of ourselves. And so is uh, technology natural because we are too, or is, uh, is it completely outside of us, meaning we are biological sort of autonomous beings with, ha- you know, a spirit having a human experience? Sure. Um, it, it's really like that whole dynamic is so I like wrap my head around different concepts about that all the time. What are your thoughts on, on just the idea of being a simulation? Can you even vet that out to truth? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm going to begin, this is, um, well, I love this conversation already. This is, I'm, I'm going to begin with a story, uh, because the story lays a beautiful fabric that we can tie into. I mentioned I'm, uh, I'm living in the high desert in northern uh, New Mexico, uh, where there are a lot of uh, indigenous pueblos and archaeological sites. And it was in the early 90s that I was hiking through one of the archaeological sites in the Four Corners area. It's Chaco Canyon. Some people, maybe you've been there. Some people know where that is. And I, uh, an indigenous man uh, was, was coming the other direction. He stopped and talked to me on, on the path. And he began telling me a story. Uh, it was really interesting. And he said, a long time ago, people in this part of the world lived very differently. They were close to the earth. They remembered who they were. They remembered their relationship to the earth, to the sky, to the past, to the future, to time. He said, then something happened. And we don't know exactly what the something was, but people got lost. Something happened and they began to forget who they were. And they so longed for the connection that they used to have with themselves and with one another and and with the earth and with the ancestors. They began building things outside of their bodies to remind them of who they are inside of their bodies. And he said, we live in that world today. We are still cluttering our outer world with all of this technology and everything that we're building out there in some way mirrors, mimics what we already do in here. And he said, we're going to keep doing this. We will clutter our world and clutter our lives until we come to this realization. He said, and then we will let that external technology go so the life in the world looks simpler, but we have become much more sophisticated uh, and much more evolved beings. And I thought, wow, you know, I thought I was just on a hike in Chaco Canyon and that that was a very, very deep philosophy. Well, I'm, I am a scientist, I'm a degreed earth scientist with a, a strong background in, uh, in life sciences, biological sciences, and math, physics, and computer science. And I say that because it helps me to stay current, Danica, with all of the research uh, that's not always easy to read. It's, it's published in very obscure journals, very technical language. 
And you know, life is simple. Nature is simple. Science is simple until we make it complex with, with his language and with the formulas and, and the math. If you want to engineer it, you need those things. But to understand it, you do not. So I have the opportunity to, to stay current with the discoveries and all the new discoveries are confirming what that native man said to me, that, that we are, we are literally a soft technology. So let me share what that means and then I'm going to tie that into the answer about the simulation. The average human body, we're told, has about 50 trillion or so cells, you know, give or take. When I was in school back in 1950s, 60s, early 70s, I was taught that those cells were like little sacks of, of salt water, you know, saline. You know, there's some other stuff going on, but nothing like what we know today. Now we know that every one of those 50 trillion cells has about 0.07 volts of electrical potential. And you say, well, you know, that's, that's not very much. And you're right, but you do the math, 50 trillion cells times 0.07 volts. I've done this so many times, I'll tell you is 3.5 trillion volts of electrical potential. Now, if you could harness that and direct that to states of healing or intuition or, uh, or, or extraordinary states of cognition or resilience or building a powerful immune system, man, who doesn't want that, you know, in the age of COVID? But it doesn't stop there because every one of those cells also is functions and essentially is in our body. It's a capacitor. It's a resistor. It's a transistor. These, these are all electrical components that massage electrical information. Every cell in our body receives photons of light that is information and energy. And we not only receive it, we transmit. We are constantly transmitting photons of light into this field that we haven't talked about yet that underlies all existence. We are in direct communication. It's a conversation, it's a two-way conversation with this field. Every cell in our body, the surface of our, because of COVID, everybody knows what a cell looks like now and about the receptors on the cells. Those receptors are antenna and they are constantly receiving light information and electrical and magnetic information. The DNA, in the nucleus of our cells, our antenna, essentially, the genes that make up the DNA, our antenna to higher frequencies, we are gated circuits. All of this is a very, very different way of, of looking at the human body. And, and this is where we go back to the first part of this conversation. We are the only form of life, Danica, that we know of today. Maybe others elsewhere in the cosmos, I'm sure there are, but we're the only form of life on Earth that has the ability to self-regulate all of this soft technology and to do it consciously at will and on demand. Other forms of life may do it by instinct. We're the only form of life that can sit down in a chair in a moment in time and say, in this moment, I choose to access this, this soft technology within me and create a stronger immune system or awaken my, my anti-aging uh, and longevity enzymes. You know, who doesn't want that? We're the only form of life that can do this. We are technology. We are a soft technology interfacing with a field of energy and information that modern science is only beginning to acknowledge. So we begin to think from that perspective. Now I'm going to go back. There's an emerging philosophy that everything that we create, that consciousness 
consciousness informs itself through its creations. So that means everything that we create in the world out there is telling us something about ourselves in here. And this is, it's a, it's a mind blower. It's a really interesting way of, of thinking. So all the art, all the sculptures, all the music. I'm a musician when I'm, when I'm not being an author. All the music that we create, uh, all, the movies, Hollywood. Look at the films that people are most drawn to, to the, the blockbusters. And, and look at the themes of those films. The Matrix, for example, told us that there's a world that we can't see that we participate in that influences a world that we can see. The movie Avatar reminded us of our relationship to, to nature and the natural world. Inception was all about dreams and dreams within dreams. And the young people, I, I love this, young people are so turned on, man. They are fired up over the superheroes, the Avengers and Wonder Woman, all reminding them that there is a potential within them that maybe they have yet to fully tap, that we have abilities that we're only beginning to understand. So if consciousness informs itself through its creations, then that principle would extend to the technology. So I am not surprised that the internet that we built mimics our neural networks within our bodies. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not okay. surprised yes. that blockchain technology that is revolutionizing finance and, and what money even means in the world and bringing peace to nations because they don't have to compete for natural resources for the old kinds of money we used to think about. I'm not supply, surprised that blockchain technology mimics human DNA. In a blockchain technology, there is a record of every transaction that has ever occurred from the very first transaction. In our genome is a record of every genetic transaction that has ever transpired from the time that we first emerged on this planet. So this, this is such a powerful principle. Consciousness informs itself through its creations. So if this is true, now we are using technology to build simulations. And we've only had computers, Danica, you know, I mean, really high-speed computers. We've had them for maybe 40 years. Uh, and look at where we are now. We are creating simulations that are almost indistinguishable from everyday life. So the question now that scientists are asking, uh, this is where the, the really intense podcast gets really, really intense. It's called The Forbidden Question. The Forbidden Question is, are we living in what is called a base reality, or are we living in a virtual reality or a simulated reality that is reflecting a base reality somewhere else? Now, a lot of people think, you know, well, this is science fiction. If consciousness informs itself through its creations, and we have made all of these movies about these simulations, what are we asking ourselves to remember? So where this really took a turn, I mean, it's interesting, you know, conversation at Starbucks uh, until 2001. 2001, the first scientific experiments were run uh, and a paper was written by a man named Nick Bostrom, and maybe you've, you've had him on the program or, or other people have, have referenced him, I don't know. Uh, but he asked the question. He said, are we living in, in a virtual reality? 
And he, he set up a very complex algorithm and ran the algorithm on the computer. And the bottom line is that the odds are greater that we are in a simulation than that we are not in a simulation. So that, that was 2001. 2014, this went further. And they began a series of, of physics experiments regarding reality. And this is one of the first, uh, as you were covering all of the ground, you know, what is our relationship to reality? And the bottom line to these experiments is what they found is that our physical reality only exists when something is observing it. And this, this ties back to experiments that were done early in the, the 20th century uh, called the double slit, very famous double slit experiments that atoms uh, or, or quantum particles will behave one way when they're not being observed uh, and they will behave another way when they are. When they're not being observed, they're waves that you can't see. When they are observed through a camera or a recording mechanism or human consciousness, then those waves collapse into particles that become our, our reality. Where this gets really interesting is this is precisely the way we build our simulations today. Our, our computers can't hold, if, if you're gonna have a simulation of a jungle, your computer cannot hold all of the information to make every leaf and all the bark on all the trees and all the insects and the rocks and the water in that jungle and just hold it there when, when it's not being used. So the computer doesn't do that. The computer only puts those there when that part of the simulation is going to be used. The experiments strongly suggest that our reality works in a very, very similar fashion and that we are the odds are greater that we are than that we are not living in some kind of a, a simulation or a, uh, a simulated reality or, or a virtual reality. Before, just before he died, uh, Stephen Hawking, this was his great, I've got a beautiful recording of him say, stating this. He said the, the question, you know, he solved all these mysteries, black holes and you know, where's the edge of the universe and how big is the universe? And he said the greatest question. He said, we must determine once and for all if we are in fact living in a base reality. And if we're not living in a base reality, what does that mean? So for me, this is, this is exciting and it opens the door to a lot of possibilities. First of all, it doesn't change our everyday lives. We're here, we're in it. But you think about this, Danica, the purpose of a simulation is to learn something in a relatively safe environment where you can make mistakes, uh, learn something that you're going to need when you get to another environment that may not be so safe. And so, so here's where the scientists are right now, then I'll stop and we can, we can uh, maybe unpack where all this is. If the odds are greater that we are living in a simulation, why? And who would have created it? And this is, this is where the scientific community is right now. If we can create the kinds of simulations that we have now after only 40 years of computers, what if we, you and me and everybody watching this, what if we are all part of a highly advanced society that has had computers for thousands of years? And we're living in a world where we've run up against a problem that we're trying to solve. 
And we're using the simulations to try to solve those problems. And you say, well, what would those problems be? I don't know, but you look at the theme of what plays out in our world today. There's, there's a constant theme of good versus bad, you know, dark versus light. There's a constant theme of our relationship to the environment. Maybe we're on a planet where the environment's going to collapse and we're trying to figure out what to do about that. Or maybe, maybe we're on, in a world where we've been ravaged by disease and war and we're looking for a, another way. And, and if we are in a simulation, why would you stop with only one simulation? It makes sense that you would run many simulations to try to find the best answer. And physicists say this is the many worlds theory or the multiple universe or the parallel universe theory. So all of this is, uh, is really coming to a focus in the scientific community because we've pushed technology so far. We understand the compartmentalized aspects. But now we're trying to put it all together to make sense of our world. And this is where science and scientists are finding themselves. And it's rocking a lot of boats. It's blowing a lot of minds. And it opens the door to a lot of possibilities of hope, peace. It gives new meaning to spirituality. If we're in a simulation and you're communicating with your higher self, is that you outside the simulation? Is that you in, in that base reality? Or when you're talking to, you know, your deceased ancestors, uh, are, are they on the other side of, of that veil helping you in, in that simulation? Which is just what we would do. If you're in a flight, a cockpit flight simulator, for example, we're all familiar with those. You're in, you're in the simulation, but you always have access to information outside that simulation to help you through. And there are rules in that simulation that will help you, that will make your, your simulation easier, that will make life easier. And the simulations always have a beginning and they always have an end. And when we look at our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions, they all say the same thing. They say, this is the illusion, this is the Maya, this isn't real, it's a dream. We have a beginning, we have an end, we're here to learn something. So I think the idea that you have so skillfully brought into this conversation is becoming the bridge between the best science of the modern world and our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions. But it's all coming together, Danica, in a way that is real and practical because we're up against it right now. There's a battle for our humanness. What does it mean to be human? And maybe what we're learning is how to assume this extraordinary potential that comes with a human body. And we do it, we do it through life. We do it through marriages and divorces and relationships and, and disease and joy and rock and roll and muscle cars from my, my age back in the 60s and 70s. And I, I think there's a way to do it and, and enjoy ourselves while we're doing it. And I think that's, that joy is really what sparks a lot of this potential in our lives. So I'm going to take a breath right there. We just covered a lot of ground and I'll, I'll ask you if it makes sense or where you want to go with that. Of course, of course, of course. Uh, it does make sense. And so many questions come up and so many curiosities and we can literally take what you said and branch off into all kinds of different directions off of them. But the last thing to come up was in my mind was, um, if we like, I'm like vetting out more of the spiritual side of things. And 
um, you know, uh, theorizing that there was an original energy in the universe, the Sophia energy, and that it comes down and, and, and it fractions off so it can know itself. And so if we look at it from that spiritual perspective, I feel like a, that also could make sense too. trying to experience itself, information and informing us are, are we, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, how being a human is actually fairly simple and that uh, everything in our reality is really giving us information about ourself, uh, whether it's through triggers or projections or how someone treats you. Uh, it's all information about the self. And so that could be that spirit, that source energy, God, whatever you want to call it, Sophia energy, original energy, experiencing itself, learning about itself. So what are your thoughts on it being more from a spiritual perspective? Yeah, you know, I think the line between uh, spirituality and science and everyday life gets really fuzzy. When, when we begin, where do you, well, honestly, where do you draw the line between everyday life and spirituality? Where do you draw the line between light and dark? And the moment, I'll just tell you, the moment you draw that line, you've fallen into the ancient trap that keeps us stuck and spinning in the false boundaries that we in the past have locked ourselves into. I have friends in the spiritual community that say, I only hang out with people of the light. I only hang out with spiritual people. And I say, you know, that's cool. Where do you draw the line between the people that are spiritual and, and the ones that are not? And the moment you do that, you're in judgment. And that judgment is what keeps you locked into your deepest fears. And it limits, it limits your heart in the world. Because we, we are all, we've heard this, we're all more than, than the worst thing we've ever done. Every one of us is. And we're all learning. You know, we're all learning. We're on this, this very steep learning curve that I think has just gotten steeper. And the, the technology is forcing the learning curve. Because we've got to come to terms with who we are and what it means to be human to know how to answer the questions of what technology do we bring do we bring into our lives you know there are are places where um, the technology is it, it's already changing what it means to be human there are some societies i'll tell you japan uh, the japanese culture is is a beautiful example they've always been uh, very open to embracing technology, and they've always been on the forefront. And in some ways, they're like the canary in, in the coal mine because they have gone places now uh, that we can we can look and say, do we want to go there? One of the examples of that, and the, the scientific papers that are are describing this, is that they are replacing intimate human relationships with digital relationships because they're easier. They're cleaner. Uh, you don't have to get tied up in messy conversations. You don't have to get tied up in arguments and disagreements. So they are relationships that are happening online, uh, including sexual relationships that are happening online. Well, what's remember, use it or lose it. One of the things they're finding in the Japanese culture is that women are losing their ability to conceive, sperm counts are dropping in men, and the birth rate is now dropped below the mortality rate. People are dying faster than, than babies are being born. And it's not 100% because of the technology, but the technology and the lifestyle have contributed to these, to these things. Is that where we want to go? Do we, 
And there is a movement, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about this, that is called the transhuman movement that firmly believes uh, that the human carbon-based life and humans are flawed, that uh, sexuality is a distraction, it's a diversion that we don't need it, and they want to wean us from that so that we're more efficient beings. Uh, and this is where a lot of this technology is, is going. And, and wean us away, they believe that emotion is our flaw. And so as we become less emotional beings, we become more efficient and better able to solve problems. That's their, their thinking. I'm pushing back strongly on that. It is, it's the power of human emotion that gives us the ability to self-regulate, regenerate, rejuvenate, our biology in a way that no other form of life can so that we we awaken this soft technology. And hopefully, like I said, have a lot of fun doing it. I mean, once the better you know yourself, the less you fear change in the world. Because when we don't know who we are and we, our sense of well-being hinges upon that external world, as long as the world is good, man, we're cool. But the minute that world starts to change, like right now, these days, people are just going nuts because they've lost that sense of well-being. They can't, you can't hinge your well-being on a moving target. And the world is changing, and it's not finished. The world is changing so quickly. They don't know who they are. And the way that people typically will respond to that uncertainty is through fear. And the fear often is expressed as hate. So we are seeing hate emerging in this changing world because people have forgotten who they are. So the better, the better we know ourselves, and this is, this is where the science becomes very applicable in our everyday lives. You don't have to know the math or the technology and don't get hung up in the words of simulation and all that. Bottom line is the better we know ourselves, the better equipped we are to deal with whatever life brings to our doorstep, the less we fear change in the world around us, the less we fear one another. But what's really important is the better we know ourselves, the less we fear our own power. And I want to tell you what we're finding is we are such awesomely, awesomely powerful beings. And I think, you know, I've been with live audiences uh, uh, all over the world in the last 40 years. And people tell me, all it's not just an American thing or European thing, all over the world, people sense from the time that they're children, that there is a power within them that they're afraid of, they're afraid they'll misuse it. Uh, it can be as simple as the power to take a life or the power to give a life, they become more, even more complex than that. So the better we know ourselves, the more peaceful our world is gonna become because we will need the stability outside of us less. We become more certain because of our uh, of our our inner technology, our inner stability, and and I think we're all, we're all finding that. You know, the COVID conversation is pushing that. The vaccine conversation is pushing that. We we've been conditioned to believe that we are powerless when it comes to contagions in the world. Maybe some people are, maybe they're not. Uh, I'm glad that there's technology so that we have alternatives and we can make informed choices. But making an informed choice is very different than being frightened into feeling powerless. And it's a, it's a subtle difference and it's a very, very powerful difference. It's up for everybody right now. 
It's a big point of conversation yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a contentious point of conversation. Um, which is interesting, right? I mean, it's just, I feel as though things are being pulled so far in two directions to, in my mind and in my experience, uh, to end up realizing that it's a circle and that we're all part of the same whole yeah, yeah. in my own personal experience of emotions and different things, which I hope to God we don't cancel emotions because as I broke open further and further into pain, I also broke further and further open to joy. And what I ended up realizing is they're part of the same whole, which is me. Exactly. Exactly. You know, Danica, I, I just want to, uh, in case we leave this and don't come back to it, I don't want to leave our, our viewers with a dangling conversation, you know, hanging. What I see happening right now, you know, we've laid out a lot of information. I think we are in the midst of witnessing two parallel societies that are emerging at the same time. And, and it's not that one part of that society is necessarily in the other, other side of town. It can be happening at the family dinner table where the parents are thinking one way. And I have friends that are involved in this. I, I have no children of my own, but I have a lot of most of my friends have children, and we, and we talk about this. Parents think one way, and the kids are thinking another way. Two parallel societies are emerging. And now that we're in it, the only way out of it is to go through it. There was, I think there, there was a time we could have circumvented a lot of the suffering, but there wasn't a willingness to, to really embrace where the world is and, and the changes that we're in. We could have, and we didn't. For whatever reason, not right, wrong, good or bad, not judging it. So now that we're in it, we've got to go through it. And I think what we're learning is that we can go through it with kindness. Uh, even though we may not all think the same way, uh, we're in it together. We're all in the same boat. And there is a, a way to differ with opinions, with, with kindness, with compassion, with understanding. The best science of the modern world is now telling us that the fundamental rule of nature is cooperation. It's not survival of the strongest, as Darwin said. Those are his exact words, survival of the strongest. Later, they became survival of the fittest. But his original words were survival of the strongest. So what I think is happening, and I, I don't think it's going to take long. We cannot sustain this path. Something's got to give. I don't think it's going to take very long. We're going to have two parallel societies. One, one, one of those societies is going to be all in on everything. They're going to be all in on the technology. You know, young kids saying, hey, man, why wouldn't I want a chip in my brain if I can do my gaming without a keyboard? You know, who wouldn't want that? All in on surveillance, all in on whatever chemicals we need in our bodies to protect us from whatever we believe threatens us in the world. All in on everything. I'm seeing something interesting happen, Danica, and maybe you're seeing this in, in your, your world as well. And this isn't even necessarily people in the, the spiritual realm, what we call spiritual or new thought or new age. This is just everyday people that are saying, wait a minute, something doesn't feel right. We're moving too fast. Let's slow down. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to what does it mean to have a family-centered life? What does it mean to, simple things, to have dinner, you know, with the kids and, and the parents together? What does it mean to grow some of our own food in the backyard? What does it mean, rather than relying on chemicals outside of us, maybe getting a little healthier inside so that we don't need those chemicals? 
What does it mean to do that? So these are two very, very different perspectives, but they're happening at the same time. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to check each other out because that's what we do. We're humans. We're going to check each other out and we're going to say, who is happier? Who's healthier? Who is more fulfilled in their life? Who has healthier relationships? And whatever the answer to that is, the people that don't have it are going to want that. It's like when Harry met Sally. I want what she's having. <laughs> That's exactly, right, right. <laughs> exactly what's good. And I think this may be what ultimately unifies us is we will unify around shared human values. Now, I'm, I've got a lot of irons and a lot of fires. I'm, uh, some of them are more public than others. Uh, I'm working with a, uh, an NGO uh, regarding the sustainable development goals it, at the UN, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, they want to implement by the year 2030. The goals are beautiful if you read them on the surface. If you look at what they are proposing it takes to get to the goals, it's frightening. So our group is pushing back against not the goals, but the way that we're going about implementing them. And my contribution to that is what I'm saying to you right now. Rather than trying to figure out the best way to do each of those goals. It's like whack-a-mole. You know, you, you do one thing here and another one there and something else pops up. What my proposal is, is that we must arrive together at a set of fundamental human values that we all cherish. What, what do we cherish as individuals? What values do we cherish as a family, as a community, as a society, as a nation, as a planet? And those fundamental values, if we can place those at the foundation of every policy that is enacted and every law that's passed and every choice that we make, we cannot go wrong. If we honor these fundamental values, when we compromise those values for economic gain or for power or for control, which we've done in the past, and I say we, not you and me, but the powers that be, not our listeners, but the powers that be. When we do that, we know what that world looks like. So our world's changing. We can't stop the change. We're either going to come in for a crash landing or a soft landing. And my prayer is that we take this opportunity that many, many are actually calling the Great Reset. That name, it's on books, it's on magazine covers, it's on CNN. It means different things to different people. But if whatever that reset is, as we embrace new ways of thinking and living, my strong feeling is that we must identify shared values that we are not willing to compromise to preserve our humanness, to preserve uh, the foundations of, of what biological life and what it means to be human and make those laws and policies conform to those values. And, I think that is where the unity will come from. That, that will unify us because we will be unified in those values. And you identified some of these already. The, the um, sovereignty of the human body, for example. I think everyone feels that they would like to have say on what happens to their bodies in, in one form or another. That's a very powerful unifying, unifying experience. I, I spent a lot of time with indigenous traditions in the last 40 years. And I've seen this principle work for them, where they may be tribes that don't get along 
but they all need water, for example. So they would work together to combine their resources to build one well, to bring water. Water is life. To bring water to their villages. And that one well was the unifying principle. That was the shared value. It's a place to begin that brought them together that they could build from. So I think our human values can become the well for our global family to, to take control and to say whatever, we don't know what the world's going to look like, but whatever that world is, if the world can honor these, these fundamental values, then, uh, then we're all on the same page. And I think that's, that's what we're going to see. Yes, that makes perfect sense. That's a great, a perfect prayer to bring us together. I'm curious what you think. I mean, you know, Again, it's not necessarily science, but it's it's uh, in the realm of spirituality. And if we're thinking everything is a closed loop, it's somewhere somewhere they inter inter they intersect. Um, but about a new Earth concept, and you know, uh, what is that, and what is that concept, and is that potentially what it looks like when we don't unify, when we perhaps don't uh, learn the lesson in this. Uh, situation as uh, humans go and we there's a split there's a split because I can yeah. feel that I feel exactly what you're talking about the split between people um, so what does that what does that look like you know the uh, that split I think is is what we're all feeling right now and I, I'm you know I'm just going to answer this I'm a storyteller I, I did an interview uh, last year at the end of the year uh, most interviews are pretty friendly. It was what we were in the business would call a hostile interview. I know you know what, <laughs> you know what that means. So it was a, it was a commuter, uh, a commuter, uh, early morning commuter program. I won't identify the city, but it's a really big city in the northeast of America. Really big city. And it, the the DJ came on, and he didn't he didn't introduce me. Didn't say welcome to the show. Good morning. It was 6 a.m. my time. None of that. The first thing he came on, uh, he said when, when he came on, he said, Greg Braden, why can't you stick with one topic like everybody else? He says, man, you're all over the map. He said, what are you writing about? Are you writing about the magnetic fields of the earth or spirituality or human biology or human potential? You know, why can't you just stay with one topic like everyone else? I thought he was joking. Uh, and he wasn't. Took me back a little bit. And I said, well, I said, my work does cover a lot of ground. But I said, if you look closely, every one of those books that you've just referred to identifies one facet of our relationship to ourselves and to the earth. So in a very real sense, I have stayed with one topic. It's just a really big topic. Yeah. And he, and he said, the okay, let's go, to, let's, let's go to break. And he never came back. That was, it was like the shortest interview I've ever done. But that was the point. Because you dropped the mic. Yeah, well, that was it. But, but the whole point is from my perspective, uh, I, I draw a, a very powerful line between spirituality and religion. From my perspective, spirituality is about relationships. It's about our relationship to the planet, to the earth, to Mother Earth, Pachamama, Gaia. It's about our relationship to the cosmos. It's about our relationship to the universe our relationship to one another, to the past, to the future, 
probably most importantly, our relationship to ourselves. So these deeply spiritual principles have existed almost from the time that we have records of the first humans, spirituality. Religion came along later and wrapped rules and dogma around those spiritual principles and led people to actually feel separate from themselves, from the cosmos, from a higher power, from the earth, and powerless, needing some kind of external intervention. So I'm, I'm drawing that distinction. Uh, I, I, and I had to figure this out for myself early in life. I am the product, of, you may know this, of a very dysfunctional, uh, abusive alcoholic family. Um, you know, in the Midwest. And I, I learned, I, I wanted to learn for myself. And I wanted to believe that I would not be defined in my future life through my past experiences. I didn't want those experiences to, to, to limit who I would be. And the only way, Danica, that I knew to do that was to understand myself, my abilities, my potential, uh, and I was just a kid, you know, you, you do it the way you know how to do it as a kid. But those ideas followed me through life. And as I became a scientist, they became, they became much, much clearer. As a musician, they became much clearer. Music is such a powerful unifying force. And it's such a deeply emotive force. Um, I we have didn't a, even I, talk about cymatics, but I love cymatics and I love yeah, the yeah. idea of frequency and energy and how EMFs and you name it affect us, but absolutely. Yeah, well, sure. well cymatics came along in the 1990s. Uh, the gentleman that brought it to the States, I was good friends with him. He, he brought it out of, uh, uh, out of Europe uh, into the U.S. His name was Jeff Volk. I hope Jeff doesn't mind me sharing his name. Uh, and, and these were for viewers that may not be familiar, cymatics is, is the relatively new science of pumping vibration into some kind of, of physical matter. It can be a liquid like water. It can be very viscous like mercury. It can be a fine powder like graphite or sulfur or talcum, whatever it is, talcum powder, baby powder. But the point is that each vibration creates a, a pattern. And every time that vibration is repeated, you get the same pattern. And it, it was a way to help us to really grasp this concept that invisible forces have a, a physical counterpart. And, uh, and, and what is the role of those non-physical forces? Thought is a non-physical force. What is it doing in matter? Emotions are a non-physical force. Beliefs are a non-physical force. So, uh, as well as the magnetic fields of the planet and, you know, the, the light coming in from the universe and it opened the door to, to a lot of possibilities. So all of this to say that, uh, once again, the better we know ourselves, the better equipped we are to deal with life in a healthy way. And this is the key. You know, we, we'll get through it, but we want to get, we want to thrive, not just survive. We want to be healthy in our relationships. And, uh, and we all have the potential to do that. And we're only limited by our choice to be limited. And I had to learn that very early on. And um, I was like a little mouse in a maze. It took me a, a few dead ends to, to really come to terms. And I'm a student. I'm still learning. I'm still learning because the science is teaching me deeper and deeper aspects of what it means to be a human 
in this in this field that we and you've interviewed dear friend Nassim Nassim Harman as a dear dear brother we travel we present together and I I really enjoyed the interview you did with uh, with Nassim. So. Oh gosh, that thank you. I again I'm this is my most fascinated and most all consuming thoughts throughout every day revolve around the the work that you guys do. I'm curious if you have a story that is in the realm of spirituality that was some kind of an uh, an awakening for you or um, a pivotal experience in your life. I have a lot a lot of stories. You know what people often ask me, Danica, is they say, "How did you make what they perceive as a quantum leap?" They they say they use that term. How did you make the quantum leap from the world of corporations? Uh, you know, I was a Working, I was a problem solver for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, the last one was Cisco Systems in the early internet. And they see such a, uh, an abyss between that world and the world of, of spirituality. I, I guess the first time I was asked the question, I was surprised because for me, there, there really was not a single pivotal experience. It was a logical progression. Uh, as I began to understand more, uh, it made sense for me to go in this direction, but I um, I think I would have to answer by saying that the, the very first experience uh, was, and I don't talk about this very often, but you ask, so I will. Uh, I was electrocuted when I was five years old and burned severely, burned all my eyebrows, my eyelashes, all, all I still have scars on my arms from it. Uh, obviously, I lived. And in those days, the doctor used to come to the house in, in Missouri. I was in northern Missouri. It was in broad daylight. And I remember uh, I, had, I had had this jolt of electricity that shot through my body. And I couldn't talk. Um, I was not really paralyzed, but I, for whatever reason, I, I couldn't speak. My mom had called a doctor. I was waiting for the doctor. And while I was waiting for the doctor in broad daylight, I began seeing in my room beings surrounding me that were helping my body to heal from, from the shock. So that experience, uh, at five years old, you don't know what to call that. But it told me, it literally shocked me into an awareness that I was not alone in the world and that there were worlds that exist that I couldn't see under normal circumstances. And the only way I could see those worlds was if I had the feeling that I had through that electrical jolt. And that experience stayed with me. And as I moved through life, I learned that that feeling, the power of, of my ability to have a feeling when I wanted to have a feeling, to be able to, to feel that connection and communicate if I needed to communicate with whatever those beings were. Coming from the dysfunctional family, um, I, uh, security and safety was a big thing. And I, I began studying martial arts really early in my life. And one of my first martial arts experiences in the dojo, we had three minutes of meditation. And my instructor, he stopped right at three minutes. And I said, I was in meditation. And I said, can we do this a little bit longer? <laughs> and I remember he looked at me, he said, son, he said, this is a karate class. If you want meditation, you're in the wrong place. But it taught me 
than to go seek out teachers. And they're, in the U.S., meditation in, in the 1960s was considered to be a cult, as, as, yeah. was, as was yoga. It, we, they didn't think about it the way we do today. So I had to seek these things out. And I began putting all of this together through the meditations. I could have the feeling that I had when I was younger, and I could, I could commune. I was never directed by other worlds, but I felt that I could commune. And when I had questions about what was right or wrong in my life, I had a place to go. And what I would call, what I personally would call a very strong soul compass. And that soul compass was with me all through the 60s. It was a good, it was a good time to have a soul compass. Uh, and uh, I was in my first band when I was 14 years old. You know, we were playing. It was illegal for me. I was only 14 and we were playing in clubs. And my soul compass guided me to enjoy the music, but it guided me into safety when it came to all the excess that was happening with my bandmates. Some of them died from, uh, you know, from the excess of the 60s. So the, all this to say wasn't a single experience. It was a series uh, and a progression from early in life of knowing that there are worlds that we're simply not taught about in our society that I'm related to, that are with me, places to go for knowing and for knowledge and for comfort and solace and times of loss uh, and deep hurt, which comes from a dysfunctional alcoholic family. And um, um, and also guided me into, you know, music was a powerful refuge for me, as was science. Those were my, my two for Science, nature, and music were my forms of, of refuge. And I, if I'm honest, I would have to say they probably still are today in, in different ways. So those fundamental principles followed me in, uh, and I learned to access them in more adult ways through, through my life. But there was not like a single transcendental moment where my life made this quantum leap from boom, one thing to another. It was this progression. Long answer to a short question. No, no, no. It kind of sounds like it happened at five. I mean, you've been obviously, you don't collect as much information as you have and as much awareness as you have. And um, how, would you even say that perhaps you, you know, I definitely would subscribe to the idea that we come into this world and we have amnesia of where we came from and what we are. And I think that there are some that have a better better uh, trust or level of just trusting that knowing or unknowing in this life. And mm -hmm. so maybe there was something that either came in from the beginning or happened at five years old. But I think, you know, having an experience with beings is a extremely powerful one. And the fact that you remember it means that it means something. Well, by the time the guy, the doctor got to the house, uh, I didn't really need that. I mean, I don't know how much detail you want. But they were, I mean, they were literally, they were, they were very tall. They were in the room with me. They were in one at my feet and my bed. This is the mind blower for me. My bed was in the corner up against the wall and one of those beings was standing behind me. And I, I remember thinking, how can there be somebody standing behind me? There's a wall there, you know, and that, I mean, that's the way the mind works. So uh, I think we do come in with uh, a little bit of a blank slate to some degree. And what I know is from a very young age, you know, I, I, do, I love the people of this world so much, Danica, uh, and, and I love this world. And I've always wanted to be able to contribute 
in some way, whatever time I have in this world. And as a kid, you do that in the way you know how to do as a kid. And, you know, as a teenager, you know how to you do it. You know, for me, it was through music as, as a teenager. And, and now it's uh, through information and knowledge to help us to have, there's so much fear. I mean, the, I believe most people are really good people. That's my experience. And when we go into fear, we can become the, the most horrible beings because we will stop at nothing to feel safe and defend ourselves from what we fear. And you can try to impose change upon that fear. It doesn't work. And I think we, we have seen that in the world. To me, the fundamental key is to alleviate the fear. And you do that through, and we've all heard this, knowledge is power. The better we know ourselves, the less we will fear. A changing world that's going to keep changing. The less we fear people that we don't know as we globalize more and merge cultures together and races together and religions that have never been merged into the same communities before. For some people, it's a joyous experience. And for others, it is, it's, it's scary. The better we know ourselves, the less we fear that kind of change. But it all comes down for me, the, the bottom line, the better we know ourselves, the less we fear our own power. And as we step into our own power as, as women, as men, uh, as families, as community societies, nations, as a planet, as we step into that power, uh, we become very, very different beings. We literally change biologically. The alleviation of the fear, or the alleviating of the fear, literally relieves tension and stress at the genetic level that allows uh, what's called, well, it's a self-regulation, upregulation of genes and DNA. We become stronger, we become healthier, we live longer, we become more intuitive, we communicate on deeper levels with ourselves and with one another. We self-regulate, we have these super immune responses, super resilience to change, and it all comes down to, to our ability to embrace the deep truth of who we are. That's what juices me to get up in the morning. But, uh, but, but I got to tell you, before I get to that, I, I listen to a lot of great music before I ever begin. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, obviously it's working. What do you think about the, I think it's called the hundredth monkey effect or where essentially there's, if enough of, uh, in something in a community learns something, there is um, sort of a mysterious, spooky things happening at a distance effect where everyone picks up the information and upgrades based without having seen it or experienced it. I love the way you, I love the way you think, Danica, and that's a great question. And do you think no. that's what we're doing? Like, is that, is that all that's necessary? Like, not everybody has to get on board, but they will as long as 1% or the 100th you know, we, we are such a diverse species, and that's the beauty. Everyone learns differently. It'd be pretty boring if we all learned at the same time in the same way. But, you know, and we all see this. We see this in our most intimate relationships, whatever partnership we have, an intimate partnership in life. Rarely do people grow at exactly the same time in exactly the same direction. Often one, one will be the explorer and more open-minded, and the other will be more content with what has been learned and discovered in the past. And so the explorer may open new doors, and then the content one 
has to choose, do I want to grow and go through these doors with my partner? That principle applies on our planet. This ties into your interview with Nassim. My, uh, and Nassim is in the field because he and I are working on a course together and I'm, I'm going to be uh, with him in, in the lab filming very, very quickly. So he's been very present with me through this whole conversation. We met back in the early 1990s. We've got a big history together. Mm -hmm. we, we met in a little hippie cafe in Taos, New Mexico before, <laughs> before either one of us had ever even done a, a public program. So there was a time when the thinking was that it takes a certain number of people to elevate the consciousness of a community. And a lot of this was done through the, the brilliant research through the TM community uh, back in the 1970s. And the, the formula at that time, and I wrote this in, in some of my books, was the square root of 1% of a given population. So you take the population and uh, you take 1% of that on your calculator and then you take the square root of that. And then that was believed to tell you the minimum number of people needed to elevate the consciousness in, in a group. And experiments were done, and what they found was when that number was reached, during the time that people were in that meditative state, and at this time it happened they were doing TM, but they've also found this works with other, other forms of meditation. Uh, crime, crime statistics dropped. Emergency hospital room visits dropped. Violent crimes against people dropped. And when, when they stopped doing those things, all those things, uh, those statistics reversed. But now the thinking has shifted a little bit. And the thinking now suggests it's less about the number of people. It's not about the sheer number. It's about the quality of the consciousness that a certain number of people can attain in this field, uh, the field that knows only coherence or chaos. And this ties into the work from the Institute of Heart Math, and uh, uh, a lot of us, uh, Nassim and myself and others, have done a lot of work with them. What the studies now are in Princeton University very strongly showing is that when a relatively few number of people can create coherence between their heart and their brain through techniques based on laboratory studies and ancient traditions of breath, focus, and feeling, positive uplifting feelings like gratitude, focused in the heart, a slowing of the breath to, to slow down and uh, uh, reset the, the vagus nerve, those kinds of things, a relatively few number of people achieving coherence influences uh, uh, an entire geographic area. And the statistics are very clear about that. And now the sim is showing on the quantum level why these effects are so profound because we are connected and we are we are more than connected we are entangled and that entanglement is happening in ways sci scientists know this in the lab where the problem is is how to build the bridge between what they find in the lab and everyday life so they find these extraordinary properties of of fractal patterns and holographic principles and entanglement on in these particles in the lab. And then they go home and have dinner with their family and say, you know, it doesn't apply to us. It's just for these particles. But we're made of these particles. Right. And this, this um. then ties into the, the deep traditions 
of the indigenous people of the past, the spiritual principles, they didn't know the science. They weren't scientists, but they understood the mechanism. They didn't have to know the math. They understood the mechanism. So in a very real sense, uh, a dear, dear friend and brother of mine, uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, I know you, you're familiar with Joe's work. He has said this, uh, we present together, we have in the past frequently, and, and I, he says this all the time. He says that science is the contemporary language of, of spirituality. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So the science is spirituality on another level, or the spiritual principles are science on another level. And I think when we break down, we stop trying to compartmentalize everything. Stop trying to keep it in a box. You know, I this is the 36th year that I've led groups uh, into the, the Andes Mountains in Southern Peru. And one of the beautiful things of, of the, that culture and other indigenous cultures is that they never separate science from art from everyday life. So when they behold something that is beautiful to them, whether it's something they created or it's a, a sunset, they don't separate that feeling of that beauty from science from everyday life. What they know is that in the presence of that beauty, they are changed. And we all are changed in the presence of beauty. When we when we feel a feeling in the presence of beauty, that's a shift in the chemistry of our bodies. It can upregulate genes. They don't compartmentalize their world. And we did not used to, Danica, until the birth of science about 300 years ago. It's only in the last 300 years that we have attempted to separate nature from everyday life and that we have attempted to compartmentalize uh, the way that we study nature. And I'm a product of this. I mean, you know, we go to school, we study geology or chemistry or biology or physics or math, and, and you get really good it, in your box. So here's a perfect example. My first corporate job, I was a geologist, a computer geologist in the 70s. And one of the first things I saw happening was that the magnetic fields of the earth are, are weakening. They're in decline. And there's a big curve. It started 2,000 years ago, interestingly. And, uh, and we are at the lowest point in the strength of the earth's magnetic field than we have been in 2,000 years. When this has happened, and, and it's cyclic. We've seen this happen before. And my question was, as a geologist, I said, what does that mean to us? What does that mean to, to, to life? And my geologist friends, in their box, they said, you know, don't ask me. I'm a geologist. You need to go ask a biologist. So I asked my biology friends, and they'd say, hey, I know about cells and about ATP cycles. Nobody ever told us about magnetic fields. Don't ask me. Go ask, you know, a physicist. And that's changing. Because we know that nature doesn't recognize those boxes. We use those, we compartmentalize our relationship to the world so that we're comfortable studying it. Nature doesn't, nature's just nature. So now it's, it's been said that the 20th century was the century of discovery. So we discovered, you know, quantum physics and the Dead Sea Scrolls and the double helix and, and all of that. Now it's said that the 21st century is learning to apply those discoveries and what they mean in our lives. And the only way to do that is to cross 
the traditional boundaries that have separated all those ways of knowing, including science and spirituality. So why judge indigenous wisdom as less than rather than recognize these great ways of knowing? I, I think we owe it to ourselves to draw upon every, every iota of wisdom that is available to us and to weave it into a way of knowing that's greater than anything we've ever had in the past because we need that to get through what we're going through in our world right now. It's, it's greater than science can be by itself. Science is the nuts and bolts. It tells us how things work. Science can't tell us how to apply it. Those ancient traditions, they, they say, oh yeah, all you got to do is breathe this way or, you know, or, uh, you know, on a full moon, do this thing, but they don't know why it works. We, we are the generation. We can bridge these into a, a spiritual science, if you want to call it that, and, and transcend. And for the first time, we have, a, we have what we need to give ourselves the evolutionary edge to thrive in this great change if we have the wisdom to embrace it. This feels to me, going more spiritual here, but it feels to me like, uh, and I'm going to loop in Egypt because I went there in February for the first time, um, like a union of masculine and feminine. Because to me, the masculine energy sort of thinks of things and the feminine energy is creation. And so using what we learned in the past, but now merging it into embodying it and understanding it and how do we... How do we um, create with it and become? And one thing that I came away with that I was just talking this out with a friend the other day, uh, and I love talking about these things because you end up sort of coming to conclusions out loud, live in, in the moment. And it was about temples over there. And I, I know you've been to Egypt and I know you this is familiar territory for you, but it's so interesting because in Egypt, the temples... Like no one could go in the temples really other than priests and priestesses. And uh, there's the, the, very few allowed in. The regular people that live there couldn't. And But it's so beautiful and it's adorned from, you know, floor to ceiling with, you know, hieroglyphics and pictures and beautiful things. And I keep thinking, what are these temples for? And, you know, definitely there was that feeling of trying to like, for me, I felt like it was the temple within me. It was there to help teach me about the temple within me. But then the other thing that I thought of that plays into what you had just said a few minutes ago about um, the resonance of the planet and it being the lowest now was what I just said the other day is I was like, it feels like these temples were perhaps where they would anchor frequencies with practices. And so it would have that hundredth monkey effect for the community because they couldn't go in. So how do they know other than, and how could they thrive other than someone could anchor the frequency? And so it's interesting that you just said that it's not about the quantity, but the quality of that frequency. Um, so I don't know, that's of course just my intuitive feeling mind uh, into situations, but that's the feeling I have. Yeah, well, there, I think, I think you're right on. And I think, I think you're right on and that those are stepping stones there were temples dedicated to the masculine, dedicated to the feminine, but then once each of those were embraced and honored and developed, it was the opportunity to transcend the difference between masculine and feminine, to weave them together into a wholeness. And what I find is a lot of people begin that journey and they get stuck. Either 
in their masculinity or in their femininity, uh, sometimes even to the point of judging what one or the other. And the next step in that journey is then to weave those into, uh, into a greater knowing and a deeper way of being. Because the truth is we're all masculine and feminine. To some, I mean, when, when you go into the core of these, these principles, as spirit, we are masculine and feminine. And I think everyone pretty much, it's, it's all about polarities, pluses and minuses, ones and zeros, you know, boys and girls, hot and cold, black and white. But this is so interesting. When you come into this physical world, we have to choose. One of those gets put on the back burner and one of them comes to the front burner. And we either... We either relinquish some of our, for me, some of my femininity to come into a masculine body, but I can still honor and preserve my, my feminine or the, the other way around. For, for, for you, you came in as, as a woman and you can honor that, but there's a, a masculinity that has served you in your life uh, and, and we learn to balance those. There's a point where we transcend those polarities. And I think that's what ultimately with those temples in Egypt, I was, I led groups for 15 years in, into Egypt, uh, in the nineties and two thousands. And it is an amazing, beautiful, powerful. I'd love to talk to you more about, about your experience there. I did a whole episode on Egypt with Nassim because I was like, okay, you're, you're, we're going to Egypt and then we're going into the quantum, um, because it's fascinating. Well, it is, you know, my, so as an engineer, I was uh, working in, in the corporations in Denver, Colorado, and my first journey uh, out of this country happened to be a journey into an archaeological site, and, and that was in Egypt. And what I saw in the temple walls in Egypt led me into the Andes Mountains of southern Peru. And when I met with the indigenous people there, they directed me into the highlands of central China and Tibet into the, uh, the Tibetan traditions where I learned about the union that, that I'm sharing. Peru is so feminine. I mean, it is so awesomely beautiful and just such a powerful feminine energy uh, that has been preserved there. And when I went into the, the monasteries in, in Tibet, uh, you know, high in the Himalayas, it's very difficult to get there today, unfortunately, um, was where we began seeing how these two principles come together in a, a really beautiful way that empowers us in an honoring way to honor our masculine, honor our feminine, honor our humanness and transcend the suffering and the hurt uh, and the loss of what it means to be human in this world. And that, that's a very deep conversation, but I, I, I'm, I'm right with you on that. I think that's what, and the interesting thing about Egypt is we now, are discovering that some of the temples that you saw probably were built in classical Egypt. Many of them, they now believe, were built way before classical Egypt, including the Sphinx. Uh, geologically, we know that that's true. Uh, it was built right around the time of the Great Flood at the end of the last Ice Age, which predates those Egyptian traditions. That opens up the whole question, who was here to do that? Why did they? Why did they do it? And what does it mean for us today? So maybe that's uh, Greg and Danica part two. Part I don't two. know. Oh God, it would be like uh, an absolute dream to do that part two. I think for now we've given people a lot of information, a lot of things to think about, um, a lot of beautiful things to think about. I think that it 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 is a conversation about a lot of hope and empowerment 
and I appreciate you sharing uh, the science that supports it, that again, continues to loop back to spirit. Like there, we're part of the same whole. I, I my, that's my hope. And so maybe you could just share what your, what your hope, hope and dream is for, for the future. And then we'll leave people with something to work on. Well, you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground, Danica, and I appreciate your, your openness and your willingness to do that. You've been very honoring. You've allowed me to speak more than I thought. Uh, I, I want to hear your ideas as well. And we, we did, we covered a lot of ground and for some people they've heard it before. For some people it may be new. This, we're talking about the scientific way of interpreting and understanding what already exists and whether we're in a simulation or not, whether this is a virtual reality or not, uh, we're here and we're here learning something. And I think the best that we can do is to be honest, truthful, and factual with ourselves when it comes to who we are and what our potential is and to to take that information to become the best version of ourselves in our lives and create the best world possible uh, because we are in this world and whatever it is that we're here to learn um, I think this is the path to the learning I know so many people and you probably do as well who've had such painful lives, Danica, that they will make the search to understand who they are, the diversion in their lives. And by diverting from the reality of everyday life, they miss life itself. And I, I believe that life is here. I, the beauty of this world, this is such, we take it for granted, the colors and the sky and just, water and the way water works and music and our ability to create these vibrations that move our soul. You know, this is what life's all about. So I just want to Im invite everyone. I think it's good to entertain deeper understandings and to use science as a language, but when it comes right down to it, it's about you and me and everyday life, uh, being the best, the best people we can be and, and finding the joy that, that really makes our soul sing because I think that's our compass. That's how we know when we're on the right path. Amen. Amen. I think, yeah, I think I'll, I'll close with that then. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.